On the special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome filmmaker James L. Conway. Mr. Conway began directing films in the 1970s, most notably a series of documentary films for the Sun Classic Pictures Corporation. While working at Sun Classics, Mr. Conway helmed some of the company's most well-remembered films from that from the era of the late 70s. Among them are In Search of Noah's Ark, Beyond and Back, The Lincoln Conspiracy. Some of the films he made while at Sun Classics are still listed among the most profitable indie films of all time. Later, Mr. Conway would go on to helm the sci-fi horror genre films Hangar 18 and The Boogans, the, the latter of which garnered very high praise from a certain author that we, some of us might know, Stephen King. Both of these films are fondly remembered by genre fans today. James L. Conway, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, uh, yes. Well, I just wanted to get a, a little info about how you got started. I know you were very young when you started uh, making some of these, when you were making some of these films, and so I just wanted to see how you got into it initially. Uh, it's an interesting story, actually, because I was at college at the University of Denver studying mass communications and film. I was studying film. And the beginning of my senior year, I happened to be in the office, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was Chuck Sellier who had a small uh, uh, independent uh, commercial and um, industrial film company in Denver, and he was looking for cheap labor to edit. So uh, I said, yeah, I'd love the job. So I went in and met him and got hired. And um, after about three months of editing his industrial films, which, by the way, were shot on Super 8 at the time, um, I said, you know, I can direct better than these people you're hiring. So he gave me a shot, and then I started directing for him. And so while I was still in school finishing my senior year, I was directing industrial films and commercials, and the company's name was CVD at the time, Creative Visual Dynamics, but it was called CVD. And uh, so that's how I met Chuck. I was 20 years old. Chuck was, I think, 27. And uh, we had the small company in Denver. I became vice president of production of CVD. And then ultimately, when uh, I had left briefly, which I'll get to, and then came back, and then I was exec uh, the, the uh vice president of production for Sun Classic for all those years that I was there. But uh, so I was at CBD with Chuck. We were doing commercials, industrial films. And then he met some people in Salt Lake City, American National Pictures, that were doing animal movies. And they had invented four-walling. And four-walling, for those who don't know, is you the, the, the movies weren't good enough, let's say, to get major distribution. So the, this company was formed. They went and they rented the theater, the four walls. They paid them like $2,000 for the night for the, to rent the theater. And then all of the ticket sales were kept by that company. And they were going around the country first with hunting movies and then with animal movies. And they were hugely successful. Um, and because they were only in a market for one or two nights, they did something that no one else was doing at the time, and that's TV commercials. In those days, there were no TV commercials for movies because most movies would go into a big city like The Godfather, and it would run, for example, in Los Angeles at four theaters for four months and then finally go wide. So there was no need for commercials. But because we only had a short, small number of prints, we had to go in and let everybody know it was only going to be Thursday night at this theater, Friday night at that theater, etc. So what we did at CBD was for... American National Pictures, I created all the, the movie campaigns and did the commercials, and, and uh, that's how we got introduced to that. And then Chuck was getting more involved with that kind of filmmaking, and uh, I wasn't that interested in it. I wanted to do real movies. So um, I left briefly, and 
Chuck was very important in my life because after I left, we stayed in touch and he'd heard about a company in Florida that had done an independent uh, thriller movie and they needed someone to, to build their campaign and do their trailers. So I went and did that job. And when that job was winding down, he had then went to Los Angeles, started working for Sun Classic and made the movie Grizzly Adams, which was, of course, hugely successful. But he needed help because the company was growing. So he called me and said, would you come back to work for me? I'm in L.A. now. And I said, yes. So I flew to Los Angeles had to work with Chuck as a head of production. And while there, we then started doing more and more films. Grizzly Adams was very successful. And then we did um, In Search of Noah's Ark, which was even more successful. And based on the success of Grizzly Adams, we went to NBC and said, we'd like to do a TV series. And we were then a, a non-union company, so we could produce much less expensively than a lot of the Hollywood studios. So the license fee was going to be smaller. So we moved the company to uh, Salt Lake City and Park City. We shot the, the series in Park City. We moved the company there, and Grizzly Adams, when it came out, was very successful. So based on the success of that, we went back to NBC and sold them a series of movies of the week about greatest heroes of the Bible. I'm sorry, about um, Classics Illustrated. There was a comic book at the time called Classics Illustrated, which we owned. The company that owned us owned this comic book. And the comic book was, it did all the classic stories, but it did it in comic book form. So I sold uh, Classic Illustrated Presents, a series of 12 movies of the week to NBC. So our little company that had been shooting the movies, spooling the prints, shipping them, doing all that ourselves, suddenly grew from about 15 people to two, full, two full-time crews. One crew was doing all of our um, movies like In Search of Noah's Ark, Beyond and Back, all the films for theatrical distribution. And the other crew was shooting all of the TV shows and the movies of the week that we were doing. And we were all a bunch of kids in our mid twenties. We didn't know what we didn't know. So we were actually, we would go and shoot uh, in search of a story of Jesus. And then we'd go off and do the time machine or Huckleberry Finn, go back and do beyond and back. Then we go do um, the greatest heroes of the Bible. So it was an amazing learning experience for all of us uh, start, you know, in our twenties, two full-time crews, and we're all great friends, and many of us are still great friends now all these years later. That's amazing. That's that's very interesting. I yeah, my, <laughs> uh, You guys had to be incredibly busy, as prolific as you were at that time. I can't imagine what the schedule must have been like. <laughs> it must have been grueling. <laughs> we, we worked, we worked uh, you know, 52 out of 52, basically. We would, you know, wrap one movie, and then we'd start doing another one. In fact, I did two mo- movies a week back-to-back, Literally back to back, we, we, we did three week schedules and then we shot six days a week for so 18 days per movie. And I finished the first one, which was the last of the Mohicans. I finished that on a Saturday. And then Monday, we started the next one, which was um, Incredible Rocky Mountain Race, which was a comedy western. Mm-hmm. And we were all over the place. We were shooting in Kanab, in, in, um, Grand, in, uh, in the Grand Tetons, in Tucson, in old, in old Tucson. And we were just moving our company around uh, as we had to go. To go, And it's amazing to me now because you'd never do it like that now. You'd never do it. When I did The Greatest Heroes of the Bible, it was an eight-and-a-half-hour miniseries. I just shot them back-to-back. I would prep and shoot as I was going. We never stopped six-day weeks. And um, they would never. you'd never do that now. You'd never have one director do all eight-and-a-half hours back-to-back like that unless you spent six months prepping it all. But we didn't know what we didn't know. So we just did it the best way we could, and it worked out great. Yeah, it's a great training ground, too, because I can imagine how, uh, I mean, the more you do it, obviously, the better you get at it. So I can imagine that that also was was very helpful as far as learning technique and how to 
efficiently get those things done. So yeah, that's it was it was fantastic training ground. And I've you know since then I've done thousands of hours of television, and um, mm-hmm. uh, it you know the the knowledge that I learned at Sun Classic really paid huge dividends when I went to Hollywood. Yeah, that's uh, I, I can imagine that it would. Uh, it's um, now I, I, the way I understand how Sun Classics would work, and and I wanted to get a little clarification from you about this is that they would get a group of people and they would basically have a list of subjects, uh, like a focus group or something, and and they would get them you know, put out some subject matter that they might be interested in, and whichever subject. That they had that seemed to have the most interest from the people they polled, they would make a film out of it or something of that nature. I believe is how it worked. What we would do is we would um, basically do uh, commercials. We would build build what would be the commercial for a subject. It would be an audio commercial generally, and it was the pitch. You know, um, whether it was Beyond and Back, and it would be it would be what a fifteen or twenty second pitch for that idea would be. And we would either have it written out and they would read it and, and, and mark their interest level or it would be something they would listen to. And then as we got more advanced and narrowed down the category, we would actually make commercials for these projects. Even though we hadn't shot them, we would make commercials from stock we had or from things we'd shoot. And we would test them. And the ones that tested the best are the ones that we ultimately made. And it worked for a while. It worked pretty well. The Beyond and Back came out of that. Um, but then, you know, we did it, we tested, um, Link, the Lincoln conspiracy as a docudrama and it had high test results. But when we first tested it after making, we also tested all of our shows after we made them, which uh, we did, we would test it. And then we do focus groups. And the original Lincoln conspiracy was a docudrama where the narrator would come on screen and we'd talk and then you'd go to a dramatization, then you'd come back and talk. And that didn't test well. Then we just made it a straight dramatic film. And that it, it tested better and it did better. Um, but then sometimes it didn't work. We did this wonderful documentary about the Kennedy assassination, very, very high testing, probably one of our highest testing, made a terrific docu- uh, documentary. Um, and then when we released it, nothing, nobody cared at all. So uh, the testing started to not work as well as we had hoped or how it, how it first worked. And ultimately, uh, though we always tested our projects, the, the the testing became much less reliable for uh, from the concept stage. Yeah, and, and this was the president must die from 1981, I think, the one you're referring to. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that's one I haven't been able to get a hold of. I, I would really, really like to see that one very much. So, and I don't remember it. Um, I grew up in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, so I. Most of these films came our way, but there were some of them that would occasionally slip through the cracks and we wouldn't get them. And right. I, I was able to catch a lot of them later on, but that's one that I haven't been able to, to locate, unfortunately. I don't think it ended up getting full distribution because it was four wall and we would they would go city by city. I think when it wasn't working well, they just stopped distributing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard you know and read various accounts of how that process worked. For Sun Classics, and uh, I was just, you know, you read things and you're not sure if that's really the the story, so you always like to to get some clarification and find out what what really did happen, because it is is a very interesting story how such a small uh, independent outfit like you guys were doing so so well there for for a time and, and making very profitable films. And doing quite well, and um, you guys well, are what, what, I think that, what yeah. that also happened is the theater the the theater owners 
realized that we were making all the money from four walling and they weren't. So they mm-hmm. started modifying that. And what they would do is it was a modified four wall where, uh, or no four wall at all. It was just a straight percentage, like normal distribution. And we're a small distribution company and, and theater owners are notoriously slow payers. When it was four wall, we were taking our money out every night. But once you have a normal distribution thing, which we ended up doing, then they won't pay you until you, they need you to come with the next movie. So suddenly the, the amount of money we were taking in was dropping and the leverage we had disappeared. So uh, if we had, you know, did a movie to say in July and they had a lot of our money, but we are not going to have another movie coming to them until October, they had no reason to pay us until October. And that's what would happen with the big studios. They're having movies, you know, every week being released and they have to pay them to keep up. So when the cash flow became a bigger issue because of the, the change in distribution, it really changed the whole nature of the company. Yeah, I can imagine that it would. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's interesting too that you know in the early day, I mean, when at the time you guys were making these types of films, there wasn't really uh, another way for these types of things to be shown. There wasn't cable television, the prolifer- proliferation of cable television that we have now, where you have entire channels devoted to these sorts of subjects. But you guys were exploring a lot of this. It was a, it was a, an interesting. Uh, time, I think, how all these th- elements came together when there was an interest in this. Yeah, subject. you're you're right. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there was there was no television shows servicing this. You know, the there was no th- something to cover beyond and back and and um, Noah's Ark, and then we did um, uh, uh, *Be a Triangle*, and before that, way back, we did *Monsters* and *Bigfoot* and all of those sort of documentary kind of things about exploitive sort of subject matters wasn't done, and then. David Landsberg did that series in search of, which sort of stole the part of our title names, and that became a, a TV staple and very popular. So I think mm-hmm. that probably impacted it too, because people were seeing it on a weekly basis, those kinds of things on television. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, because uh, yeah, they, and they did. It's pretty obvious they did steal some of your thunder there, because uh, a lot of the subjects that they were covering were things that you guys had already previously covered in your films, which is yeah. Uh, yep. it's it's pretty it's pretty obvious. So yeah, I, th- I think a lot of credit needs to be to given to you guys for for you know kind of charting a course, I would say in what you were uh, uh, um, accomplishing at the time, because it's very impressive and and you know I, I know in the business it's uh, a configuration of different things that you know it's, and some of it is luck, some of it is timing, and uh, that I, I think you guys just hit it. At a at the correct time when there was, you know, in the late '70s when this when this was a thing in the culture. So it's just funny how that all came yeah. together. And, I agree. Um, it was yeah, we, we it, a lot of it wasn't pre-planned. It just sort of happened, and then we, you know, we were taking <laughs> advantage of it. But, but uh, uh, and, and you know, it was this was low-budget stuff uh, production-wise. I'm not very proud of a lot of the things that we did back then. Some I am, but. Uh, like I said before, we were we were young kids just uh, learning as we went, and uh, some were better than others. Yeah, and and that that would happen, uh, you know. And you have to make do with what you have to do with, as they say. <laughs> so, in yeah. terms of the budgets, yes. Uh, but yeah, I was um, just curious about some of the maybe production memories of the documentaries. That if you had any specific memories of the productions of any of those, uh, for instance, uh, I do you... remember. I I do remember like yeah. Beyond and Back. Uh-huh. Um, when we were shooting that, 
a number of times I'd be talking to some of the, the other local actors that we hired. And by the way, one of the toughest things about those shows is we had no money. We were at this point based in Salt Lake. And we had the local actors as people that we used to populate the film for the different roles that we would have. And they oftentimes were not very good. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that's kind of a shame. But that being said, uh, during, during Beyond the Back, a number of people that I talked to, either extras or actors, that had had similar experiences where they had, you know, died, been in a car accident and seen a white light and then they were brought, were brought back. So, you know, again and again, that, that sort of came up uh, in, pe- in terms of people I was talking to. So that always sort of amazed me. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that, that phenomenon more so than a lot of the others, because when you're dealing with historic Jesus or Noah's Ark, those are, you know, things people don't have uh, day-to-day uh, experiences with, but the beyond and back really did touch a nerve. Yeah, and that's one of the I I think I think what it was I saw in search of Noah's Ark when it made its uh, debut on NBC Television I believe it was, and so I didn't see yeah. that theatrically, but I did see Beyond and Back theatrically and it made quite an impression on me. I was about eight years old at the time, and uh, you know you're kind of impressionable at that at that age, and it really yeah. there was some stuff in there that was a little frightening to me. I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> as an eight-year-old boy seeing it and, right. uh, yeah so it was uh it, it it really did leave an indelible mark and and i think another thing for, for people who were my in my age range who saw these things theatrically uh it did fire our imaginations it really did um it, it i think it was um uh, it, it fueled our interest in these sorts of things and led us to go and do research on our own, you know, go to the library and seek out books and try to read about these things. And it, it's a, it's something that interests me to this day. It's an ongoing thing because of your, your films that you made back then. So it's, uh, it's, it's something that, you know, it's um, <clears throat> definitely a, a, an indelible part of my um, formative years and what made me who I am. So <laughs> I must, I must say. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, I always have an interest in that kind of stuff too. I remember it as a young kid going to the library and I would always, you know, pull out the science fiction books and the speculation books. And I always loved those things. So, uh, and it still fires my imagination. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and same here as well. Uh, and I know that you use Brad Crandall as the narrator for a lot of those. Uh, he had such a, I think he was a New York based, um, broadcaster, I believe who was known m- mainly in that area, but I know he had such a great voice. He was such an excellent choice for, for um, for what you the, in the way you guys used him in those films, and I was yeah gonna... he was I, I love Brad he was based in L A when we worked with him and um, he originally just started doing the voice over for our commercials and then we started putting him on camera and uh, he was the the light to work with I just loved him he died way too young he but sure I do did. remember when we did the Lincoln conspiracy uh, you know I was flying with him to, we flew we flew to New Orleans together and that one we took him to all the actual locations as opposed to just you know, faux sets, different places, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really fun to spend time with him. He was a great guy. Yeah, I was I was curious about that because he he seemed like that that he would be, and he it gives such an aura of authenticity. Like he really sells <laughs> the subject in those films. He really yep. does a good job he selling did. it. And uh, exactly right. Mm-hmm. So excellent, excellent choice. And I and I was curious about the location filming uh, because I know that can get kind of expensive at times and i wondered how much of the actual location filming you guys did especially on things like 
say, uh, In Search of Noah's Ark. I know that's uh, Mount Ararat and all that. You know, it's in Turkey, and you get into that sort of thing, it, it, it does get kind of expensive. And you guys were such a small outfit. I was curious about that. We uh, we did travel. Uh, on, we did go to Mount Ararat. There was some stock film, and then we did uh, some filming locally in the mountains of Utah. Uh, for some of the mountain stuff, but we did travel to Texas for some of the interviews. All the interviews happened in far in different places. I went to um, New Orleans to do some interviews, and um, I went to uh, 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 what's it, um, South Bend, Indiana, for some interviews. So I did, we, and and to L.A. for some interviews. We went to um, uh, La Jolla to do some interviews where we did the tests of the, the the boat in the water tanks and all of that. That was all done in La Jolla at Scripps Institute. So we traveled around the country, but we did not travel to uh, Mount Ararat. And the group that traveled, I mean, there was probably just one, two, three, four, five or six of us. But as we then became more successful, the, because the Adams was very successful, those movies of the week had big budgets. We suddenly had, we had a Learjet and we would travel and fly the company to different places with Learjet and the crews got bigger and the projects got bigger. So the early ones like, like uh, Noah's Ark was really more of on the shoestring. And then the company got more successful and made more money. We spent more money and the productions got bigger. Yeah. I, I was very curious about how much of that was actual stock footage versus the location shooting. So yeah, that's, um, that is, uh, that's good to know. Um, so the critical reception, I know, was not good on a lot of those films, although they finally hold a place in my heart as in many other people, like I said, in my age group. And um, uh, which one of these were you most proud of or which one did you think came off the best as far as what you guys set out to do or um, what your intentions were? I, well, let me let me think about how to say this. Um my great memories from all of those are the people I worked with and uh, I formed great friendships. We were all, none of us, none of them reached the technical or production status that, that we had wanted to, or I had hoped I've gone on to work on, you know, very top flight productions um, for the last 40 years here in Los Angeles, where I have huge budgets and I would do, you know, I did Star Trek and I did, I did magicians for five years. I did charm. So I've done a lot of, top-notch Hollywood productions, which I'm much more proud of in terms of the quality of the work. But in terms of my memories from the Sun Classic stuff, uh, the ones I'm most proud of are, are the Boogans, which was the horror, the cult horror classic now, and and um, High Hangar 18, which were both much, much better in terms of production value and, and scripts and, and, and uh, much more Hollywood-like. But none of the documentaries uh, I feel that strongly about, except I did love uh, the President Must Die, it was our most realistic documentary, and we spent a lot of time and trouble flying around the country doing it, and it was the least successful. That's one of the great ironies. Um, you know, Noah's Ark, I think, is a very raw, almost amateurish production compared to the kinds of things that uh, I, I like to associate with myself now. But it was well-intentioned and, and, and erstwhile, if you know what I mean. And a lot of the people I worked with on that I continue to work with for the next uh, five and six years, so um, it's a roundabout way of answering your question. Uh, but we were very we were very aware of our our limitations and shortcomings, and as we kept working, they the movies and the, the TV shows kept getting better, and that's one thing I'm proud of. Yeah, and I think, uh, and this is a question I was going to ask later on, but I I, I think 
it's very sad that so many of these of the documentaries uh, are so hard to find uh, on home video. I I wish uh, I'm not sure what the rights situation is with those. I think it would be awesome if if uh, one of these boutique labels would just release all of them and do some you know some fresh transfers. I know the uh, maybe the original materials are kind of hard to find. I'm not sure, but um, I, I think that that's been a really Sad thing that they're not able that there's that there just aren't really good copies. They're YouTube copies, but you know we know those are take, sourced from a lot of videotapes, I think, and things of that nature. And so I think that's a really sad thing, and and another reason why these films are criminally uh, neglected, unfortunately, because of you know I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, uh, I, I worked on and off for Aaron Spelling for many many years, and for six years, nineteen. 96 to 2002, I was executive vice president of Spelling Television. And when I first got there, I realized that Spelling Television owned all the rights to Sun Classic projects. And so I started digging in there and I had them release um, the Bookings and Hangar 18 on VHS, which had never been done. And now, of course, they've since gone to uh, DVD and Blu-ray. That's, that's all good. But there wasn't much interest in doing the doc, anybody doing the documentaries. Uh, Greatest of the Bibles has just been de- put out as DVD. But I don't even know if anybody knows where all of the original negatives are for those those films. Um, the spelling got them because they had brought and merged at some point with Hanna Barbera, and Hanna Barbera had got them because they had merged at some point with another company, Taft, I think, that ended up owning spell, the, the the Sun Classic negatives. So I have no idea where any of this original stuff is for the documentaries, though it's now owned by uh, CBS Paramount because spelling was bought by CBS and Paramount. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing how all these things come around, but they, they technically own Grizzly Adams and, uh, and they own, you know, all the movies we did and all the TV shows and, and uh, documentaries we did, but I'm sure they don't even have an idea where those negatives are. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, maybe maybe that would be a good quest for myself to take on, just out of curiosity, if I could possibly do it. I don't know if I could get to the bottom of that, but uh, gosh, I it'd, would, be, it'd be a it'd be a worthy challenge. Yeah, I would I would just love to have them out there, you know, for future generations to look back on, because like I said, those those films they did. You know, they they started something that continues to this day, and I, I think it is a, a part of our cinematic history that's sadly neglected. Uh, I was going to get into Hangar 18. I haven't hadn't quite gotten that far yet, and I was going to uh, to ask you about that. I knew you had some pretty high caliber actors in there, uh, Darren McGavin and Robert Vaughn, and uh, I'm a big fan yeah. of their work, obviously, as we uh, I think most of us are. So I was going to uh, ask you a little bit about that one, and the because it seems like that was a little bit of a bigger production than than the documentaries. It was a big step forward for us, you know. But there were two camps inside the uh, uh, the company. You know, we were a, a production company, and we were also a distribution company. And the distribution company really wanted to keep doing the documentaries and stuff, stuff they knew how to sell. But the production company, all of us young budding filmmakers, wanted to move away from that and to move to more dramatic pictures. So when we had a subject like Hangar 18, which I think started as a documentary idea, we sort of pushed it to the full dramatization idea because we wanted to make real movies. And that's how we made that transition from, and we were also at that point, we had done Grizzly Adams TV show and we had done 12 movies of the week for NBC. So, you know, at this point we were firing on all cylinders as a production company and 
we wanted to start doing that with our feature films. So that's how we ended up doing Hangar 18 and then The Boogans is trying to move the company more into normal dramatic Hollywood type uh, projects with a, you know, we still had the, the, the sci-fi tilt of Hangar 18 and the whole thing you could push about whether there's a fly, the hidden flying saucer and UFOs and all of that. Um, and we just made the moves to straight horror with the Boogans just because at that point our distribution site thing had changed as I mentioned before. We were just doing regular distribution with the theater owners. The documentaries were not doing well, like the the, uh, the Lincoln Conspiracy, I'm sorry, the, the well, Lincoln Conspiracy was only moderately successful and then the, the uh, the Kennedy assassination one was not successful at all. So we had to find something else that was going to work, and that's why we tried Hangar 18 in the Boogers. Yeah. I, uh, I, it was definitely a shift in in the company based, I mean, in, uh, in comparison to what you guys had been doing at that point. And I was just – but that totally makes sense that you, you evolve and you want to, to try bigger things and, and that – so yeah, that's totally sensible that you would. Um, I, gu- I guess uh, I'm assuming that the experience of working with such actors as McGavin and, and Robert Vaughn would, was was pleasurable. I hope <laughs> it was fantastic. We had a great time together. Um, and you know the way our company worked because we had so much work, people worked for us again and again and again. Uh, that's besides crew. Uh, and the, by the way, the way we handled our crew is we had two crews. They were full time employees and uh, we paid them 52 out of 52. They were getting less per week than they would in Hollywood, but we paid them 52 out of 52 whether they're working or not. And we also supplied healthcare. So the people who worked for us in those days, it was it was a nice nice situation. And we would keep hiring the same actors. So there was a stable of actors that we would keep going back to. A lot of the actors you'll notice from our shows uh, are in a lot of the different ones. And so uh, we had used Robert Vaughn in one of our Bible miniseries ones. And I worked with him on Greatest Heroes of the Bible. So it was, and I, we had a great time. So I brought him back for Hangar 18. I always wanted to work with Darren McGavin, so I was thrilled when we got him. And uh, I loved, I, I loved and became friends with all those actors. And uh, same thing with the Boogans. In fact, on the Boogans, um, the act, the main actress Rebecca Balding. Um, while we were shooting, I, I, we started going out. We got married, and we're still married. We've been married 39 years. Oh, congrats! That's fantastic. Oh, that, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's now that's a really good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was an amazing. I mean, it was. I have to say, it was a uh, alcohol-fueled uh, romance. We got married during, while we were still shooting the movie. Four weeks into the movie, we got oh. married. It was a crazy idea, <laughs> but somehow it worked. Oh, that's terrific! That's fantastic. Yeah, and and, and Chuck Chaya was my best man. Oh, great! Oh yeah, I um, uh, yeah, I, I, the Boogans. I know there was an article that Chuck uh, Sellier had done he had done an interview with uh, Fangoria magazine I think some years back I did read that and he was talking a little bit about the Boogans he felt like it was compromised a little bit because Taft had bought Sun Classics out and he felt like they just weren't really um, giving them exactly what they needed I think in terms of the special effects and I thought maybe you had some insights on that as well or if I don't know if your feelings were. Um, I think the Taft connection may have just affected the distribution. Making the movie, you know, this was pre-digital, and so the you know the monster was the monster, and we showed it as little as possible. Um, if I had to do it again, I would even show less of it. Um, 
but I, in the production of it, I don't think Cab. I mean, it was, might, might have had more money to spend, but I, I wouldn't say that anybody held us back. I think distribution-wise, it didn't get the full distribution it should have. Um, but luckily, it's considered uh, you know a cult classic by many people. It was just on T, T, uh, TCM has run it, uh, Turner Network has run it a couple of times, and uh, it was ran on just before a Halloween here in Los Angeles at. Um, Tarantino has a theater here that shows old movies, and it was it was the lead film of a triple play classic uh, uh, creature feature, and it was the first movie they showed that night. So it still it still has an audience. It still gets out there every so often, and I, I'm happy about that. I really enjoyed making that movie. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that at the New Beverly. I've I've been to the New Beverly on many occasions, but I haven't. I've not been able to make it out there for the Halloween shows, and um, boy, I bet that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, full house and appreciative audiences. So, you know, the people who like those old horror movies are, when they come to them, they really enjoy a lot of the fun of it and the corniness of it and the, the thrills and, and scares in it. Yeah, he, I, I know what he does, I think, if he still does this, he uh, doesn't tell anybody what he's running for Halloween and he just sells the tickets and you, it's kind of a blind buy and you go in there and you don't really know. He doesn't announce the titles until the night of, I think is how it works. Well, this one, this one was on Twitter. There was, it, okay, it, so everybody it was, knew it. Yeah. And it was a triple feature. So the Boogans was first, but there was two films after that. So it was a lot of, um, there was a lot of, uh, uh, people there for, you know, to enjoy the, the triple play. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I was lucky enough to catch the midnight showing of Rosemary's Baby one night, and he sat right in front of me at the uh, oh cool <laughs> at the midnight Very showing. Cool. For, yeah, and it was it was so surreal because uh, it, it was like having an audio commentary by Quentin Tarantino because I could hear every comment about the movie that was coming out of his mouth as I sat Funny. there. So yeah, that was that was a hoot. So yeah, you, you never know, you never know. So yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what what was your feelings about uh, Stephen King giving it? You know, I'm sure you were probably overjoyed about that because that was—he really went out of his way to champion the film. I remember when it came out. Yeah, that was great. It was—it uh, it did a lot for the film then, and it still carries a, a weight now. I mean, his, when he says he likes something, it—it uh, it means something. So yeah, that was a huge—a huge boost to us and gave us a lot more credibility than we would have had without it. Yeah, I figured it, it probably did. Uh, I remember, and I didn't see it in a theater. Uh, I saw it on cable. I saw it on HBO when it came. But I remember we were getting advertisements for it in this area, and it seemed like it was only six months or less, and it was turned up on HBO. So uh, it was a quick turnaround from theatrical to cable, uh, from what I remember. It may uh, have been a, it may have been a cash flow problem for the company. It's, usually, that's the kind of thing that uh, you uh, I apologize for that song, that you you sell it. Uh, uh, do you sell it to HBO to get the money? So it could have been a cash flow situation where we had to sell it quickly. Mm-hmm. That 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 totally makes sense. Yeah, and and the Blu-ray that's out there, I think it's still in print. It's Olive Films, I believe, put it out, and they did a fantastic job. It it looks better than it's ever than it's ever looked. Yeah, I think. So, yeah, they did a good. They did do a good job, and uh, uh, it's it's nice to have that out, out on Blu-ray. And it's it's funny because uh, you know my kids. I think they've seen it on Blu-ray, and my and Rebecca, her, their mother, yeah. and two daughters, you know, it has a couple of very mild nude scenes in there, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's it's sort of fun for them to see her at, at such a young age. I mean, she was 32 when we made the film, and uh, it's you know, it's nice for my kids to see their mother when she was so young and hot. <laughs> oh, that's funny. 
That's good. Uh, yeah, well, um, are there any projects that you had to turn down? I'm always curious about these things that you just scheduling-wise that you wish you would have gotten to do or uh, during those days when you were at Sun Classics or just always curious. Um, most of the things I've had to turn down were once I got to Hollywood, there would be conflicts when uh, I was committed to one project and something else was offered that I would like to have done. For example, I did um, I did. I was involved with original Star Trek, not the original, but from Next Generation through Enterprise. Um, I did from the very first season of Next Generation. I worked on that one, then Voyager, then Deep Space Nine, then I did the pilot for Enterprise and worked on Enterprise. And that I would come and go to that as I had my own shows. I was also a writer-producer, so I had six of my own shows that were I produced and wrote uh, during those 18 years. Um, but a couple of times like when they were getting ready to do the pilot for the, the, the finale of next generation, Rick Berman, the executive producer called me and asked me if I was available. And I was not, I had to turn it down. Then he later called me to see if I could do the pilot for Voyager, which I could not, I was busy. But then when he called me to do the pilot for Ener- for enterprise, I was able to, I was working for spelling at the time and I told them and they, they released me to go do the pilot. And then I went back to spelling afterwards. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, well, I, I know things do get, you know, they, when things, and you're busy, you sometimes do have to turn things down that you later regret, and so I was, I'm always, um, it's always a curiosity to me when, when that, what people do turn down versus what they were, uh, kept them from taking a project or whatever. Yeah, so I, uh, are there any new projects that you're involved in that you'd like to promote or anything like that? We always like well, to give our guests an I'd, opportunity. Now, the last five years, I've been directing on and off, but it's like one or two an ep- a season, a show called The Magicians, which is on sci-fi, and it's also on Netflix, which is a edgy, sexy, Harry Potter-type show, and it's, I've loved this show. Uh, my my This year's episode that I did just aired two weeks ago, and I've just found out that the show is not coming back. It's been on for five seasons, and it's, its run is coming to an end, which is too bad. And after that, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Um, and, and ironically, I just bought a house last year, in Park City, and I'm moving back to Park City to spend spring, summer, and fall there. Uh, I have so many great memories from Park City, and just going back there, I fall back in love with it. So uh, I'm very excited about that. And I'm sort of going back to the scene of the crime, which is great. (laughs) 